Hi there, everybody. My name is Scott Grayson, and you're listening to Mentally Unscripted, the podcast where my co-host Stefan and I inspire you to think more clearly and have better conversations about the world. When you ride along with us, we'll take you on a journey that will show you there's always more than one way to look at an issue. You'll learn to think critically about what you see and hear, and how to challenge the narratives those in power want you to believe. You won't always agree with us, but that's the point. To learn that we can have deep conversations and learn from each other, no matter how different we are. Stefan is still sidelined, so I'm going solo again today, and I'm going to talk about judicial review. Just as Stephen Breyer announced his retirement, and we're already starting to hear about possible replacements. So get ready to hear pundits, talking heads, and the idiots on Twitter talk about stare decisis, judicial activism, and constitutional interpretation. I'm going to explain some of the major theories of constitutional interpretation. I'm going to talk a little bit about judicial activism, and I'm going to explain why none of it matters. As always, we're building a community around Mentally Unscripted. So share this episode with your friends and interact with us at mentallyunscripted.com. And remember, the conclusion you reach is less important than the process you follow to get there. As I mentioned, Stefan's still on the DVL, but I have it on good word that he'll be back. And of course, I'm only assuming that the person I'm talking to on the other side of Signal is really him, so I haven't laid eyes on him through video or anything. I don't know, there could be something nefarious going on. I'm not real sure. At least whoever is typing to me on Signal is telling me that uh, he wants to be back next week, so... This may be the last time you get me solo for a while. Uh, we did have a pretty good response to last week's podcast, so I decided to do another one. Just a quick technical note, um, I totally screwed up the video uh, for last week's podcast. So what you have up on Odyssey is video free. It's just the uh, audio recording. And I'm probably going to try to give the video a rest for a while, at least until I have some time to experiment with trying to um, figure out all the ins and outs of it. But apparently Odyssey didn't like the bit rate or something that I had the video recorded at. And when I tried to convert it, it came out all messed up and upside down. So I, I have no idea what I did there. So... This one is just going to be uh, video or, excuse me, audio only. That's okay. I don't think most of you really want to see my face anyway as I'm talking. Uh, it's not really much to look at. So first off, though, we are going to get into a discussion of uh, Stephen Breyer retiring. Uh, not so much discussion of his retiring, but when a justice retires and a new justice gets nominated, we hear a lot of pundits talking about some uh, things that may, it may sound like you know what they're talking about. They may sound good. You might think you might be able to figure it out, but um, I find that a lot of these, a lot of these things are technical. So things like stare decisis and judicial activism and judicial review. Um, so today I wanted to go through and just talk about the different theories of judicial review. And I'm going to explain why none of it matters because remember, like, like we said last week or in the last episode, the law is not as objective as we want it to be. A justice who is left-leaning or right-leaning, uh, they don't always, they can't always put their political or their social views aside, right? Everybody's going to be a little biased. So a left-leaning court very well, we'll take the OSHA mandate, for example, a more left-leaning court very well may have not issued the stay against that. Not always, but but the court's not immune from that. And judicial interpretation or judicial review um, is – there's several different theories to it. Uh, we'll get into all of that. Um, just, uh, But first, um, I wanted to just say something pretty quickly here about um, – most of you have probably heard about the 
Barry Weiss on the Bill Maher show. And she, uh, for those of you who don't know Barry Weiss, I guess she's a pretty progressive journalist. She used to work for the New York Times, and I think she's on Substack now. Um, and she's been on Joe Rogan, and uh, I heard her on the fifth column a few times. I'm not the biggest fan of Barry Weiss, but um, she did declare on the Bill Maher show that she's done with COVID. I, I didn't watch the whole thing, but I did see clips of it. And basically, she was saying the same thing that we've been saying for a long time. Like, we've been getting told that we needed to wear masks and that the vaccines were going to work. And just and none of it's really turning out to be true. And uh, it's and it seems like our public health authorities are constantly moving the goalposts. So she's just declared that that she's she's done with the covid thing. And Bill Maher jumped in and, you know, he uh he joined in with her and he was heavily criticizing the government's COVID response and um, questioning some of the hypocrisy about, you know, why is it, um, you know, wearing a mask for the three minutes that you're walking from the front door of a restaurant to the table is necessary. But when you're sitting down and you're eating, it's not. And a lot of it just doesn't make sense. And this is stuff that a lot of people have been saying for a while. Um, and Stefan and I included, we've haven't said a lot on the podcast itself, but we've talked about it a lot on off air, offline to each other about it. And one thing that struck me, I mean, first off, I mean, it's good that people like Bill Maher and Barry Weiss are starting to come around and starting to realize that a lot of the narrative doesn't make sense. But in listening to these clips, I really got the sense that they seem to think like they're the first people who have come up with this or the first people who've realized this, which I thought was pretty funny um, when, like I said, people have been talking about this for years. That the, um, that there's just been a lot of inconsistency in the policies and in what we've been getting told. Still, I have to agree with Barry Weiss. I mean, it, it's, it's time that we should just be done with COVID. Unfortunately, there's so much competing information and propaganda floating around about COVID that I doubt we're ever going to be able to boil this thing down to the bare facts and get to what the actual truth is. And, you know, part of that is, is, uh, our own personal biases. So even if we somehow figure out what the actual science is behind all of this, um, if we figure out what the good science is and we manage to throw out the rest of the, if throw out all the bad science, science, because we all prioritize science differently and there's no objective cost benefit analysis that applies to every single one of us. Um, cost benefit analysis, it's cost benefit analysis is subjective. It's what are the benefits to me? What are the costs to me when I'm trying to evaluate whether I should get a vaccine or uh, wear a mask, for, for example? Um, my analysis may be different than your analysis because I'm in a different situation than you are, that sort of thing. So even if we get everything boiled down to just the bare facts and get rid of all the bad science, uh, there's still going to be a disagreement, I think, over the COVID narrative and exactly what the best course of action was. But if we do get to that point, though, I think we'll at least be everything the window of what could be true or what could be discussed i think would be narrower I, I think one thing we would do is we would throw out the people who were saying that you know anyone who doesn't want to get the vaccine should be thrown in a concentration camp or worse i, I think we would you know be able to pretty easily dismiss those folks that sort of thing and my whole point here is i think when it comes to covid i mean we're at the point where we just have to decide what our own personal truth is about covid and I'm a little less concerned about what your truth is or what anybody's truth is. And I'm just, I'm more concerned about how you arrive at that truth. You know, do you arrive at it honestly? And by honestly, I mean, are you 
looking at the information, applying it to your situation, and coming up with your own cost-benefit analysis to decide what's best for you? Or are you simply aligning with the opinion of someone on Twitter who is telling you who the enemy is today? If you're doing the first, then I think you're arriving at your your personal truth about COVID honestly. If you're doing the second, you're just aligning with a particular group, then you're not coming at it honestly. And any personal truth that you get from that is garbage. That's that is the way it is. If you're arriving at a truth about COVID because you hate Trump or you hate Biden, your truth is garbage. Okay, go do your own research. And I get that it's not easy to, like I said, there's so much data out there. It's hard to go through everything and to under, separate the good science from the bad science and, and even understand what is good science and what is bad science. I get it. It's hard, but you still have to come to your own conclusion. So if you're buying into a narrative just because it's blue or red or green or purple or blue, or, you know, so-and-so said this, so-and-so said that, I like that person. I don't like that person. All right. Your personal truth is garbage. Shut up. When you do come to your personal truth, honestly, you arrive at that honest personal truth, stick with it until you see compelling evidence that says that you have to update your conclusion, right? Don't be wishy-washy. I mean, if you think vaccines are necessary for everyone, then by all means, look for look for compelling evidence that would say otherwise, but don't believe it just because some idiot on a podcast or on Twitter says something different, you know, vice versa, right? If you don't think vaccines are necessary for everybody and you buy into the idea that um, we should just have targeted protection, right? Stick with it, right? Own your principles, right? Now, personally, I'm, I fall in the latter group, right? I think um, targeted protection, vaccines for the people who are vulnerable is the way to go. That's my personal truth. And I understand that the vaccines do have um, some side effects and they, they are dangerous. In fact, you know, for a vaccine, they're, they're quite dangerous. But I also understand that for a lot of the people, it, getting COVID is still more, is even more dangerous than getting the vaccine. So, but that's a personal decision. You have to weigh your own pros and cons. Come to your personal truth honestly, stick with it. Then when you see compelling evidence that says that it's time to update your personal truth, don't be afraid to do that. Okay, enough of that little rant. I wanted to start off with an update to last episode. So remember the last episode I talked about uh, the Supreme Court's OSHA ruling, or um, ruling in the OSHA vaccine mandate case. And I talked about how, um, yeah, I mean, if you remember that ruling, that ruling was only a stay against OSHA, um, or a stay, which was effectively telling OSHA that it can't enforce its mandate until the question of the mandate's constitutionality got resolved in uh, through the lower courts. Okay, so that ruling, it didn't slam the door on the mandate, okay? It only put a hold on it. And now the Supreme Court's ruling, if you read it, even though it doesn't say that the mandate is unconstitutional, the ruling says that it... Th- that the Supreme Court thinks in a six to three decision, remember, that the states and the other business organizations who challenged the OSHA mandate would prevail on the merits. Okay. The, the court still didn't say it's unconstitutional. So when the court, so when the Supreme Court entered the stay, it sent the case back down uh, to the circuit courts. And remember, it all got, got consolidated into one circuit court. So there was only one circuit court that had the case. And um, it, so at that point, the question of constitutionality was really going to start to get hashed out. So OSHA had a choice. It could keep fighting 
keep everything the same and just keep fighting and hope that there is some sort of a change that would um, cause it to win. And again, the law is subjective. Um, so it's possible that if OSHA had, if OSHA had fought it out that, you know, maybe, you know, maybe there would have been a new variant of COVID that would have made the situation much worse. And then by the time the case got back up to the Supreme Court, when there, it was really going to be decided whether it was constitutional or not, maybe the situation would have changed and become so dire that some of the justices who, um, who said OSHA was overstepping its bound the first time may have changed their mind and switched to the other side. You know, anything could have happened. So like we said, the law, the law is subjective. And you better believe that those justices would have figured out a good reason why, a good reason to justify their changing their mind if they felt that the political winds or the social winds were swinging in another direction. So, you know, OSHA could have could have taken that gamble. They um, could have also changed their rule up a little bit or their regulation up a little bit based off of what the Supreme Court had ruled or what it had said in their opinions. OSHA could have changed its rules up and tried to make it conform or, or try to cure any defects that the Supreme Court had pointed to. The other thing it could have done is withdraw the order. So as most of you have heard, um, this OSHA took the, the last uh, tactic and they withdrew the order. I believe it was effective um, the 26th. So that's good news. OSHA decided to withdraw its mandate. Uh, one thing, just a quick aside, I thought it was pretty funny that in in its notice withdrawing the mandate, it said that the rule um, was only strongly encouraging vaccination, which I, I think is kind of a joke. I mean, do we really need an emergency regulation to strongly encourage vaccination? I, I think any way you cut this, this was a, this was a mandate. The option to test and to wear masks, I think, was intentionally onerous enough to push people into just getting the vaccine so they wouldn't have to deal with weekly testing at their own expense and, and constantly having to wear masks. So I just I thought that was pretty humorous that uh, OSHA is now saying that it was just strongly encouraging vaccination. So anyway, um, so while with OSHA withdrawing the mandate is good news, keep in mind that the constitutional question still hasn't been completely hashed out. It still hasn't been decided on. So this mandate can come back. Okay. And I don't know why OSHA withdrew the rule. I haven't seen anything that was even speculating on why they did it. You know, let's hope that it's because they realize that mandating, mandating vaccines is evil or that maybe it's experts looked at the um, current environment with Omicron and acknowledged or realized that the mandates are you know, not necessary, you know, given that I think, what, 95% of the COVID cases now are Omicron, and it's not as deadly as the other variants. Uh, in fact, it's, from what I've been reading, it's, it's basically a, a cold for some people. It can be a pretty bad cold, but it really doesn't uh, rise to anything beyond that. Or, you know, the other thing that could have happened is OSHA could have just read current sentiment towards the vax mandates. You know, we've got England and Ireland Ireland have stepped back on all the restrictions. I've been seeing articles about demonstrations in Germany and France. There's the big, you know, 10,000 mile long convoy in Canada that I guess is protesting the vaccine mandates. And, and I'm just a, that's a bit of hyperbole. It's not 10,000 miles long. I think I saw 70 kilometers long or something, but of all the truckers that are driving through Canada to protest. And then 
like I said before, I mean, people like Barry Weiss and Bill Maher are, are starting to see the light and starting to question some of the inconsistencies. So it's possible that OSHA just, they just read the tea leaves or they read the winds and said that this is not a popular thing to do right now. So anyway, they stepped it back. But they can always bring this thing back if there's a change in the environment. You know, not necessarily that this is going to happen. I, again, I don't know what their reasoning was. But if there's some sort of a shift in the Supreme Court, some sort of shift um, in the environment, like I said, a, a, a more deadly uh variant comes out, uh, they could re-resurrect this thing. Because remember, the law is subjective, right? So just because something doesn't pass muster today doesn't mean that the environment won't change and cause the court to change its mind later. Also keep in mind that this was a rule that was made under an emergency process. So normally in administrative law, there's a it's a pretty lengthy process that where the agency has to issue a notice of proposed rulemaking. It has to give the public uh, time to comment on the rule, and by law, the agency has to review every comment that gets submitted. So in a case like a vaccine mandate like this, there's probably going to be, I, I don't know, millions of comments. So it would take the agency some time to go through all of that and to do everything that it has to do to follow proper administrative law rules and procedures in order to get this rule promulgated. Um, so if they went that route, it, it, we could very well, COVID could be very far in the rearview mirror um, before they ever even got around to, to putting out the rule, the final rule. Uh, so, you know, that may not be feasible, but it's something else that it, it, it could possibly happen. Okay. Um, so the, the good news there is that, you know, just the normal rulemaking process is so long and so involved that you know, maybe um, it'd just be totally not feasible. So that's where we stand now, is that OSHA has withdrawn its rule, which is good. But again, I'm not saying that this is going to happen. I don't I'm just trying to um, put it all out there. It's possible that this thing could come back um, because it has not been actually ruled on. It has not actually been ruled on by the Supreme Court that it's unconstitutional. All we have right now is the ruling by the Supreme Court saying that it thinks that the states and the business organizations who are challenging the rule would succeed on its merits in the lower courts. And because of that, then it would be unfair for OSHA to enforce the rule. So last word we had is that there was a stay against it. And I believe that stay, since OSHA withdrew the rule, I believe that stay actually goes away since there's actually nothing there to enforce anymore. But I, I'll have to check on that. I'm not 100% sure on that, but I believe that's what happens. Okay. So during that update about the OSHA case, I mentioned a few times about the law being subjective and about how justices can interpret a law and interpret the Constitution. It's pretty wide. It's pretty wide open field about how they interpret the Constitution. And they can interpret it in a lot of different ways in order to get the outcome that they want. And so I want to talk about that, this idea of judicial interpretation. And again, this ties in with uh, Justice Breyer leaving the bench. We're going to get some new justices nominated or going to a new justice nominated. So we're going to start to hear these words, and I know, I'm remembering back to Kavanaugh and um, Amy Coney Barrett, during their judicial nominations, like Stare Decisi got brought up a lot, and there was a lot of hand-wringing and worry about over whether um, these justices would overturn Roe v. Wade, um, and that sort of thing. So I get the impression that a lot of the pundits who are talking about this stuff don't necessarily know what they're talking about. They're just using these words. You know, maybe they do. I don't know. Maybe they're smart smarter than I'm giving him credit for, but I, I doubt it. So anyway, I just wanted to talk about judicial interpretation or constitutional interpretation is a more specific term where you're 
actually interpreting the Constitution and um, give you some of the, the prevailing theories. And I, I probably don't need to explain to you why none of this really matters, because I think as I go through the theories, you'll see. But the bottom line is, is that, like I said, if a justice wants a case to come out a certain way, they've got multiple theories behind interpreting the Constitution available to them that they can pick and choose from. So they can always, they can decide what they want the outcome to be and then just back into a particular theory in order to justify it. And they don't have to actually name a theory. Okay. Um, there's nothing requiring, you know, there's no requirement. There's no like little checklist saying, okay, what, what accepted theory of constitutional interpretation are you using here? But often justices will follow a particular theory, even if they don't name it specifically as their justification for reaching the outcome that they want. Now, some justices are better about sticking to a particular theory, um, you know, whether they're a textualist or textualist or um, a strict constructionist. Some justices will um, will be pretty consistent in how they interpret things. Okay. Now, other justices are not. And this is where you get into the idea of judicial activism. And that is when judicial activism is when a justice will, they look more towards the outcome than they do towards interpreting the Constitution in any consistent way. I think that's the best way I can describe it. So a, a justice who adheres to the idea of stare decisis pretty strictly, even if they are 100% against abortion, since we've got Roe v. Wade and KCV Planned Parenthood that have set up the framework for allowing abortion because they believe in stare decisis, they will not overrule those cases unless they have an incredibly compelling reason to. Another justice who is maybe a little bit more of an activist may may be willing to break away from their their philosophy on judicial interpretation and and say that well maybe stare decisis isn't so important in this case I'm going to go this other direction to try to overrule one of these these cases so that's the idea behind judicial activism is um, how the way I think of it is really is like how objective and how subjective is the justice. And there's a lot of debate on how activist judges should be, um, how much judges should respond to the political and social climate, and how much they should just strictly stick to interpreting the Constitution. It's a bit beyond what I'm going to get into here, but when you hear judicial activism, just think of that is how willing is the justice to break away from prior precedent and uh, their past um their past history of interpreting the Constitution in order to have an outcome that they think is what the United States needs at that particular moment. Okay, so this um, this podcast, the stuff I'm going to talk about here, I'm basing this off of an article that I wrote um, called What Does Constitutional Interpretation Mean Anyway? And Patrick McFarlane posted this on um, his pod or on his blog at Liberty Weekly. Um, he also has a podcast called Liberty Weekly. But it's um, libertyweekly.net, and it's what does constitutional interpretation mean? And uh, we posted this last August, but this is a pretty good rundown, I think. And one thing to keep in mind is that there's there's no defined set of theories to interpret the Constitution. Uh, When I was doing my research for this article, I think every source that I read had a different list of theories there. Some, you know, some of the sources I read would just broke it down into like four theories. Other sources I read had eight theories, and there's a lot of overlap between them. And some of them, I mean, the the differences in them is very um, 
inconsequential, I guess, is the best way. So the, the differences in them is very fine. So these are the ones that I found that I think were the most often um, listed, at least in the sources that I found. So don't ex- think that this is the definitive list of constitutional interpretation theories. It's just a list. So to begin with, like when we talk about constitutional interpretation or judicial interpretation, it start off from this idea that the English language is not exact, right? There's some vagueness to it. And because of that, um, we have to um, interpret what people say. Uh, and the Constitution is not – the Constitution's not magical, right? There's – there's nothing that is saving that from being interpreted. So, for example, you know, the Constitution has got the necessary and proper clause, but nowhere in the Constitution do they define what do they did the founders define what necessary means. Okay, so that is left up to judicial interpretation. You have to define what does necessary mean. Okay, so that's that's one example. And this idea of constitutional interpretation. It, it goes back to the um, separation of powers and the court being able to interpret the Constitution and weigh um, laws and regulations against the Constitution is the court's way of checking the legislative and the executive branches um, to make sure that the actions and the laws and the regulations that these branches are passing or putting into effect are are consistent with the constitution all right so it's pretty that's where it fits into the you know the third grade social studies framework of the legislative executive and the idea of uh, judicial review was if you read the constitution it's not in there anywhere nowhere in there does it say it's the supreme court's job to determine what the law is this comes from an early case um called Marbury versus Madison, uh, where Chief Justice John Marshall said, and this is a pretty famous quote, that it is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial t- department to say what the law is. Let me I stuttered there, so let me say it again. It is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. So that's a famous line that comes from that case. So that's seen as Chief Justice Marshall essentially defining the role of the Supreme Court as, or the judiciary as interpreting the Constitution. There's actually a pretty good law, or a really good law review article. I think it was um, in the Duke Law Review that argues against that the idea that that's what Chief Justice Marshall meant when he said that, and that um, he he wasn't trying to uh, ad- adopt this idea of constitutional review uh, um, as being the sole province of the um, judiciary. But that's a little beyond the scope, I, where, we're, where we're at today, again, whether you agree with it or not, where we're at today is that we accept that the Supreme Court is, is, the, is the final arbiter of what the law is. So there's a number, like I said, there's a number of theories that go into how we review the Constitution or how we interpret the Constitution. And we can break it up into two broad categories, these theories. We can break them up into two broad categories. One is originalist. And so when you interpret the Constitution, originalists look at the text and structure of the Constitution, okay? And um, they may also consider the drafters and the ratifiers' intentions. So they may look at outside writings. Um, They may look at what um, the common meaning of words at the particular time that the Constitution was written and was drafted and ratified, things like that. And the the primary difference between all the originalist theories is where the um, is where the primary focus goes. Is it strictly on the Constitution or is it on some of the ancillary writings 
that we have from that time period. Okay. The other main branch of theories is called non-originalist. And non-originalists, they look beyond text, intent, and structure of the Constitution. And they look at things like established precedent, um, natural, natural law, social, political, and economic consequences of a decision. So when we talk about judicial activists, they're most likely going to fall into this non-originalist camp. So, and, and these theories are more subjective. So this, so they provide a lot more room for activism and the personal morals of the justices can can come into play here um, because they're not looking at the document and the writings and trying to determine intent um, based off of that, right? They're, they're bringing in a lot of outside stuff, including their own morals, and they're trying to weigh the consequences of their interpretations. Okay, so there's a lot more room for activism here. Okay. So what are the major originalist theories? Okay, so we've got original intent, okay? And that is simply that um, this theory of constitutional interpretation is based on what the drafters intended the words to mean, right? So it effectively requires the justices to um, dive into the heads of the drafters of the Constitution and try to extract their thinking behind the words, okay? So they... Um, Original intent folks will often uh, pull in ancillary documents to try to understand what was being said. Uh, you know, so the Federalist Papers are um, are cited pretty frequently uh, as um, helping uh, people understand why things were worded particular ways in the Constitution. Okay. Then there's the text textualist. This is the second uh, major originalist theory, and that's this is textualist. They focus strictly on the text and the structure of the Constitution while setting aside intent. They look at what the Constitution's text, the, the original accepted meaning of the words by the public at the time it was drafted. Okay. And these are the folks that are the most objective, right? They believe that there is an objective, unchanging, and knowable meaning to the text. Okay. Um, and there's a, a, a pretty popular case called Griswold v. Connecticut where um, Hugo Black's dissent is considered a classic example of textualism, where um, the case was about um, privacy, and there was an argument over whether there was a right to privacy, and Justice Black just basically said that there is no right to privacy because that specific right is not found anywhere in the Constitution. So that's textualist. If you're talking about the right to privacy, and the word privacy doesn't show up in the Constitution then it's not a constitutionally protected right. Strict constructionist. Okay. Now this one, of all the originalist theories, it's this one's the most amorphous. Um, and it, it it doesn't seem to get done in practice a lot. And um, it, it seems like it's brought up mostly by politicians um, when they're talking about judicial interpretation. So when we get into the um, the nominee hearings, for the Supreme Court, you, know, you might hear this strict constructionist language come up. Um, you know, for example, you know George Bush and John McCain. You know, they both promised to appoint strict constructionists to the bench when they were running for president. They both promised to appoint strict constructionists to the bench if they were elected, but they never really defined what that means. So, what it seems to mean is that we take take the text of the Constitution in its literal sense. Okay, but you know. Th the hard part of that is, though, is, is how, how can we take vague words at their literal sense? Again, so back to the necessary and proper clause. How do we know what the literal meaning of necessary is, right? Where, where does necessary end? Where does it begin, I guess, is, um, is the question, right? Is forcing the 
population to get vaccinated against COVID? Is that necessary? Some people will say yes. Some people will say no. A lot of it will depend on, you know, what you, what you understand and what you believe about the human immune system and the efficacy of alternative treatments, right? So that, that's why this one is the strict, strict constructionist interpretation. Um, it, I think it's one of those things that I, like I said, pundits may throw the word around because it, or the phrase around because it sounds good, but in the end, it probably doesn't mean anything. And even if you have a justice who claims to be a strict, strict constructionist, they're still going to have to interpret vague words. Okay. So again, remember, what does necessary mean in the necessary and proper clause? That's the best example. Okay. So th those are your major originalist theories. Um, you've got original intent, textualist, and then this sort of amorphous, strict constructionist theory. Okay. Non-originalist. Okay. Um, stare decisis, right? We hear this. <laughs> we hear this a lot every few years when we have a new Supreme Court nominee. Stare decisis. Do you believe in stare decisis? So stare decisis, it's just a Latin term that means to, to stand by things decided. And all that means is that if the court decided something in the past, you don't change it. You stick with what the court decided in the past. What it does is it it provides public and predictable rules. Okay, so you know you know that because of Roe v. Wade and KCV Planned Parenthood, you know what the rules are around abortion, right? So you so if you're going to be an abortion provider, right, you you know exactly what you're supposed what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do, what the you know the ins and outs of it are basically. And this is good because then you don't have to worry about um, a court coming along and later deciding to change the rules on you. Public settled rules are are a fundamental basis of our legal system, a fundamental basis of our society. We don't want to have to keep going back and changing the way we behave and our social structures structures to match the whims of the Supreme Court. Okay. Um, so if something's already been decided, then you stick with it. Now, obviously, there have been times in history where the court has overturned its own precedent, right? So they don't always stick with stare decisis. And again, um, it could be reasons of, you know, just um, um, the changing um, social landscape. Okay, you could have more activist judges on a bench who are willing to um, let their own morals dictate outcomes, uh, that sort of thing. Then there's pragmatist. So a pragmatist, it this is the one where it balances the consequences of various interpretations of the Constitution against each other to find the one with the least negative impact. And I heard a podcast recently where they were um, one of the folks on the podcast. I'll see if I can find it. I don't remember the name of it, but he was essentially arguing for this version of constitutional interpretation, the um, the do no harm version. Okay. So where the court looks at a case and they say, well, we don't really know what to do because, you know, the constitution's over 200 years old. Uh, the founders didn't, didn't anticipate this particular situation, whatever it happens to be. We don't really know what's best. Um, we can't predict the future, so we don't know what the outcomes are going to be. So we just have to try to decide. And we have to look at what we think the, the possible outcomes are, and we have to decide on the, and we're going to pick the one that's the least impactive is essentially what that is, the, the do no harm um, approach. Um, so there's an example of pragmatism is a case called US v. Leon. And so in that case, um, uh, police officers used an invalid warrant to find evidence against a defendant, and the court ruled that the evidence was admissible because the, the officers believed in good faith that they had a valid warrant. And the court decided that, on balance, 
because it was the, the police acted in good faith that on balance upholding the search was better than not admitting the evidence because in the end you were able to find uh, the, the, the court was able or the prosecution was able to use this evidence to convict the defendants. So you got, you know, you, you found justice and the cops didn't knowingly do anything wrong. So that's, that's the, uh, an example of a pragmatist uh, reasoning. Okay, the next on the list is you've got moral reasoning. And this is just the idea that the text of the Constitution is infused with general moral principles. Um, uh, striking down segregation in the D.C. school system was an example of a uh, moral reasoning. Okay, then you've got national identity and national ethos. And this is where courts try to read into the Constitution this identity, this national identity that we have of being an, Amer- an American. Um, so an example here is West Virginia State Board of Education v. Barnett. Um, so in that case, there was a state law that required students to salute the flag. Um, and the court struck that down that law on First Amendment grounds. And the reasoning was is that the U.S. is not an authoritarian state. So we don't use meth- coercion as a method of achieving national unity. So what that means is that we're not an authoritarian state, so we're not going to force kids to salute the flag. Okay, so national ethos. Our national ethos is that we're a a country that values free expression and that we do not resort to coercion to get people to express uh, any sense of national unity. Okay. Okay. So structuralism. This one is, I think, maybe the most complicated of the theories, but this establishes a relationship between the federal government's three branches and also between the federal government, the state governments, and between the government and the people. Okay, so um, the relationship between the three branches of government, also with the relationship between the federal and the state governments, and then the, the government, um, the whole government and the people. So McCullough v. Maryland is an example that I found of this one. And that's the case where uh, the court ha- held that Congress had the, thor- the authority to create the second national or the, yeah, the second bank of the United States based on the implied power of the necessary and proper clause in Article One. And so... Article 1 is the article of the Constitution that covers the legislation, or the legislature, covers Congress. And so, since since the Necessary and Proper Clause is included in Article 1, it's actually in Article 1, Section 8, um, it grants powers, okay, because the... the because the because of the structure of the Constitution and where the Necessary and Proper Clause was included, it was included in this section that grants powers to Congress. It concluded that Congress had the power to establish this bank, as opposed to Article Nine, where it restricts powers. Like I said, I think the one of the the harder ones to grasp, but that's that's the idea: is that we look at the structure of our government and the relations between the branches, the various levels of government, and the people. And we try to make our interpretations based off of that. Now, I mean, in the end, I mean, are you originalist? Are you a non-originalist? Um, you know, so originalism, you're trying to stick, stick to meaning and intent. So it gives you more objective criteria to decide cases. But as we saw, right, there's still a lot of room for subjectivity in there because you're trying to get into the heads of the people who have been dead for hundreds of years who wrote these words. But it, it still gives you some some sort of objective thing to um, hang on to, some sort of objective um, framework to hang on to. You know, non-originalism, on the other hand, it's more flexible. So that means that the court is free to um, 
decide cases that will have the most favorable outcome given the social and political landscape that we find ourselves in at that particular point in time. Now, one argument you can have is that, well, you know, we should do originalism. And then if, um, if the social and political landscape changes so much that we need the constitution to change, we've got the amendment process. But then the argument against that is the amendment process is pretty hard. I mean, we haven't had an amendment in a long time. So by going with the non-originalist approach, right, we, we make it easier to sort of unofficially amend the constitution, I guess. In the way we interpret it, that's that's up to you to decide whether you think that originalism or non-originalism is uh, is the way to go. I, like I said at the beginning, I don't think it matters. <laughs> Justices are going to decide the way they want to decide, and they will f- find their justification for it however they they need to. So, if a justice wants to be an activist judge, they can back their way into justifying any outcome. Um, so, at the end of the day, I guess my whole point here is when we're hearing, when we're going through the judicial nominate or the judiciary, or excuse me, the Supreme Court justice nomination process, and there's a lot of people arguing over what's this justice going to do? What's what are they going to change? Are they going to get into? Are they going to get on the bench and just overrule everything? Are they going to throw the Second Amendment out? Are they going to you know do whatever? Just remember, I mean, it, it doesn't really matter. The justices are going to the justices have the ability to go whichever way they want to go. Okay, and they don't necessarily even have to justify it, right? These are smart people. They can reason their way, right? They can twist words around and come up with logic to reason their way into anything. And we saw that when we were talking about the um, Supreme Court's uh, stay against the OSHA mandate. You had the dissent and the majority basically citing the same law, but just interpreting differently how that law would be applied and whether um, it's the court's place to um, read limitations into the law or not. Okay, I mean, it's all subjective. So this idea of objective law, it just doesn't exist. And that was my whole point here. So so when you guys are, are listening to these judicial nominations, these hearings for the judicial nominations, and you're listening to all the talking heads talk, just keep that in mind that it, at the end of the day, all of this, I mean, it sounds good. This is all a lot of the mythology that goes into this this idea that we're a nation of laws, all these different theories of judicial interpretation. But at the end of the day, does it really matter? I don't think it does, but you'll have to be, you'll have to judge for yourself on that one. So anyway, I'm going to wrap this up. I don't know how long I've been talking here, but uh, I'll get this one out there and posted for everybody. And in the meantime, you know, if you got anything good out of this, man, please share it. Just, you know, give it to your friends, um, neighbors, whatever. Um, tell them to give it a listen. And we're on all of the uh, major, major podcast platforms and we are working hard to build this thing up. So go out to mentallyunscripted.com um, and leave uh, leave comments, get a discussion going. And also I did include my uh, email address in the show notes for the last episode, and I'll do so again. So definitely shoot me an email if you have any thoughts or questions or any comments, and we will uh, talk to you next week. And hopefully Stefan will be back with us. So take it easy.